Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Right now, we are going to turn the microphone up for a gentleman that's been in the studio many, many times, and we say a good morning to the one, the only world traveler and famous Dr. History. Good morning, Zeb. How are you, buddy? Another beautiful day, only I what? Can't, are you can't, sure? cannot see the <laughs> South Hills. They're covered with smoke. It is really ugly out there. Yeah. It's, it's pretty thick. Yeah, and you know, I feel sorry for people that have asthma, emphysema, etc. And I have a cold, and boy, it's really been rocking my socks off. Yeah. The smoke and everything so thick. Anyway, let's not complain. Uh, we'll have it for hopefully just a few more days, and then it'll drift out of here. Um, what are we going to talk about this morning? All right. Uh, the Transcontinental Railroad, uh-huh. 1869. Oh, good year. So That's a year that you graduated from yes, high school. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know that? Okay. So let's start. Let's just give the people a kind of a topographical map here okay. to think about. Okay. Right. So we start in Omaha or Council Bluffs, uh, Nebraska. Rolling terrain. Going through Grand Island, North Platte, Sydney, all in Nebraska, Julesburg, which is in kind of the northeast corner of Colorado. Yeah. Then over into southern Wyoming, Laramie, Rawlings, Green River, down into Utah, uh, Ogden, uh, Corinne, then on over into Elko, Winnemucca, over to Reno, past Lake Tahoe. I have a question right there. Okay. Why did they absolutely miss Idaho? You know, they surveyed that. uh, Was it the river? You know, I really don't know. They just figured that that was the best route. Really? And, and the shortest route. To get to... Well, it, not not always uh, cost-wise, because the cost of cutting and filling was hugely expensive. I noticed that they made that big drop, and and they, the surveyors, evidently, and the railroad itself didn't want to come across the bottom part of southern Idaho. But really, when you think about it, Ken, southern Idaho would have been a lot easier right. to get across than some of the other areas yeah. that they chose. Yes, if you'd gone over through Snowville and yeah. that way. Yeah. But, you know, it ended up over there in... Uh, uh, past Reno and on into Sacramento. Yeah. So that's the route. And last week, which we don't have on the my uh, webpage yet, but I will have it today probably, we talked about the surveyors. Yeah. And these guys were really kind of Lewis and Clark type people because this was, they didn't have any topographical maps. They didn't really have a lot to go on. What did they use as information? The, I think it was mainly word of mouth scout ahead. and scout ahead and look and try to find find and discover and that's what they did a lot of uh, a lot of surveying looking around really? so so anyway so they were the first guys to come through and figured out the you know where it should go so behind them came the graders this is where the work began okay there were a few hundred of them uh, mainly recruited in new york or other eastern cities some immigrants born in ireland or elsewhere in europe and some second generation americans and of course they had the latest and heavy equipment oh, like cat did. and caterpillar and, <laughs> yeah we'll get into that yeah. and uh you know they were lured west by the promise of steady work and high wages and get this Zeb, they got as much as two maybe even three dollars a day Sometimes more. Wow. Yeah. And they actually, there was a lot of uh, young veterans from the Civil War, and they didn't have a lot to do uh, or go home to. So in the, Nebraska, they were organized into teams. 
Now, they were commanded by various bosses. These were the, quote, boarding boss, and he was at the top. Okay, his tent went up first when camp was made. Then came the camp doctor, if there was one, uh, which often there was not. And his job was pretty easy because when the water was good and the food was good, the health of the men was excellent. Now, they lived in the open air. They worked hard. They ate. They slept well. Uh, if there was no camp doctor, the boarding boss had a medicine chest filled with bandages and a few simple remedies. And you got to know there were more accidents. Yeah. How were they treated, though? Well, very, very crudely. You know, I was going to ask you about they that. Probably, they probably, the doctor may have been able to sew people Was up. it kind of like, and I hate to use the terminology, slave driving? Well, these guys were working, and, you know, uh, they did push them. Yeah. But, you know, there were variable stable bosses who assigned the men to their jobs. Now, each boss might have 100 horses and mules working his wagons, and he knew them all by name. The driver and the harness for a team were never changed, and each driver was responsible to the boss, who was expected to turn the outfit back to the contractor at the end of the season in as good a shape as when he took them. Oh, so these horses wow. and mules had to be taken care of. Now, what about the preparation for each day? i got to ask you this. I okay, mean, what I, time I, did they start? We may get to that. Uh, we're going to... Uh, yeah. Anyway... Uh, uh, so, in other words, you're they, telling me to shut up. <laughs> Well, in, in a very nice way. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> okay, so so we've got those guys, the drivers and the harness teams. Then there were what they called the walking bosses who had their eyes constantly on the men. They used, and I'm going to quote, vigorous profanity and time checks to keep the men working. Okay, so when you said slave labor, sort of. Now, if a boss caught a man loafing, he cursed at him. The next time, he cursed in a louder voice. The third time, the walking boss called the timekeeper, gave the man his time, uh, adding for the enlightenment of the others, quote, this is not a Salvation Army, but a grading outfit. In other words, he was gone. Really? You, if you didn't work... And you're out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's like, okay, where do I go? You know, yeah. but uh, occasionally the Irishmen went on strike uh, whenever they wanted to, and whenever, and, but usually it's because they failed to get their pay. And when the pay didn't arrive on time, these Irishmen kind of got a little ornery. Yeah, now wait a minute there, Doc, and I am going to interrupt you here. Irishmen, you know, it's been known through history, they might get a little pugnacious. <laughs> That's an interesting word. <laughs> I think you're right on the button there. Anyway, and you mentioned the, the work. You know, the men worked with shovels, picks, wheelbarrows, teams, and scrapers. Now, for those who don't know, the there was a, a dump, a dump uh, bucket, too, uh, that would pull behind a horse. It would yeah. load up, and then they would get to a certain spot, and they would dump that. Yeah. But the younger men were usually the drivers. The older ones did the plowing and filling. The men in their late teenage years or early 20s were generally the shovelers. Obviously, they were young, strong. But the job of all was to lay out a grade for the track, one that was level with only a bit of curve two feet or more above the ground so it would not be flooded out. And mainly that required digging dirt, filling a wheelbarrow with it, taking it to the grade and dumping it. Sometimes two men used a dump wagon drawn by a horse. Hard work. Oh, man. But and how many hours a day did they expect them to work? Was it all daylight hours? Uh, for these guys, it was, but we're going to get into some that went even longer. Oh, my. So, anyway, they dumped the dirt onto the bare ground. First, the grass and the roots had to be removed and tossed aside, not just turned over. They didn't just put it on top of the sod. 
So the dumping boss was a man with a good eye and uh, typically an Irish accent. Mm-hmm. He stood on the grade and indicated with his shovel where he wanted the dirt dumped. <laughs> okay, he leveled the dirt with his shovel, and under his constant care, the grade grew and just the proper pitch until the top was leveled off, ready for the cross ties. So this is the step before you start laying the ties and the rail. And now promptly at noon, the walking boss uh, called out, time every man in the outfit heard him as did the mules and the horses everything stopped okay really? everything the animals were unhitched and put to water then the men went to the boarding tent where their appetites made even the coarsest fair taste pretty darn good and you know if, if you've been working hard uh, pretty much anything's going to taste good right absolutely and now at one o'clock the voice of the walking boss was heard, and the men went back to work, although after the hearty meal, it took a vast amount of, uh, quote, profanity to get them uh, stepping again pretty you know, good. Now, wait a minute, though. You, by the time you took the animals, the horses, and watered them, yeah. you're going to be looking at a good 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. And so these guys had to really wolf down that food. Right. So the guys with the animals... I bet they didn't get 10, 15 minutes to eat. At the most. Yeah. Now, the bosses, it was widely agreed, were not tyrants. Uh, the average grader had muscles like steel, could take care of himself in a fight, and generally they uh, ruled with comparative ease, and they got the grade done. These were tough guys. Ed. These oh, were just man. wimps. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. But when the bosses couldn't level the grade, the scrapers, drawn by oxen or up to four horses, were called in to do the job. When solid rock was encountered on a ridge line, uh, which coming from the east didn't happen a lot in the Great Plains, not a lot of rock. But when they did, the men used hand drills and stuffed the hole with black powder. Look up. When the rock blew apart, the remainder of the cut was dug out and leveled. Now, a cut was done entirely by hand, and the men would form an endless chain of wheelbarrows uh, for fills the dirt was dumped in, obviously. And again, can you imagine the work? I mean, that's uh, a lot of work. Now, at Mm. night, after supper, the men would play cards or sing songs such as, and you've probably heard of these songs, Ed, because you're older than me. (laughs) What was that look? Here's a song. See, okay, you tell me if you've heard this one. Poor Patty, he works on the railroad. Yeah, it was uh, right there no, with the you, Beatles in 1967. You haven't, you haven't heard of it. Okay, here's a couple others. How, there's one called Pat Malloy. There's another one called... You know, I have heard that. Have you? Okay. It was in a movie. Uh, they sang that one okay, time. Okay, another yeah. one called Whoop Along with Liza Jane. Oh, yes. <laughs> you went to school with her sister. Yes. But anyway, the songs were sung almost regardless of harmony and probably not much in tune. Well, so here we are by mid-October 1865. The graders were up to a place called the Loop River, and preparations were being made for putting in the foundations of the Loop Fork Bridge. Now, this was 1,500 feet in length and was a pretty amazing job. Uh, The trestles were being made in Chicago in accordance with measurements and instructions laid out by the surveyors. So this was probably one of the first of the 
really high, long bridge. Where was this at? It's called Loop River or Columbus. Does that sound familiar? They, they started in Iowa. Uh-huh. Then they went to Nebraska. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's not back in Nebraska someplace. Um, I'm not sure. I don't you have know. You bring up a map. good point here. I was going to ask you about who really followed the schematic. Uh, who was the main boss over everything as far as looking ahead, saying, oh, we got a railroad trestle we got to build here, et cetera? Well, the surveyors laid it out, and then the graders, the engineers, came along. How many miles could they grade a day? That depended entirely on where you were, if you were coming from the west or from the east. I see. So, and, and we'll get into that a little bit. But, uh, and then, of course, behind the graders came the track layers. But there was no timber and only thin growth of cottonwood, so the immense amounts needed for ties, trestles, and buildings had to be shipped up the Missouri River. They didn't have the right kind of wood. Wow. Now, here's a machine that I had never heard about. It's called a burnetizer. Okay, now this was a machine that treated the cottonwood through some kind of a vacuum device that drew out the water in the trees and put a zinc solution in its place. Well, we're talking 1869? Yeah, 1865, right in there. Wow. Uh, Now, okay, I'm going to describe this burnetizer. Burnetizer. And what it was, it was a huge 100 by 5 foot cylinder sent to Omaha by steamship. By 1866, the company had three of these. After the water was drained and the zinc solution put in, the ties were treated and dried. The ties cost 16 cents each to be processed. The Union Pacific saved money in building, but spent a lot more in replacing the cottonwood ties. But by then, the railroad was finished, and that was in accord with the general principle of get it done and we'll fix it later. Do you have a picture of that? I I don't. Oh. so anyway, some type of... Was a, this some kind of a precursor as to what was used later on, too? It may have been, but it sucked the, the, the water out and put the zinc in it. Uh, who figured that I out? don't know. But anyway, they, wow. they got it going. But They were pretty darn smart. They were. You know, but the contractors, they used cottonwood, which when treated would last three or four years, uh, long enough for the tracks to, to get to where they needed to go. And then they could come back and replace them with, with good ties. Yeah. So it was quite a process. Now... To get a locomotive through uh, granite uh, coming from the other direction required tunnels, and without them, no locomotive could get over the summits, even at the passes or with switchbacks. So tunnels through granite had to take precedence. I marvel going up into Oregon, over by Baker, et cetera, all the tunnels. Oh, yeah. Wow. And to make it happen, a way had to be found. And so early in 1865, the Central Pacific went to work on this unsolved problem, so to speak. And as the grading and then the tracks made their way up the Sierra Nevadas, uh, the ground was kept bare for the graders by having half of the men shoveling snow after storms. So the entire grading uh, force was put to work removing snow. You, Again, Zeb, everything you said this morning so far sounds like a heck of a lot of work. <laughs> oh, and I haven't even got to the worst. Oh, my. So that fall of 1865, the Central Pacific went to work on the tunnels, six of the 13 that would have to blast out before getting to the east slope. The biggest is called number six, right at the summit, as within a few hundred feet of Donner Pass. Mm. And you've been over there. Yes, I have. Uh, anyway, it was 1,659 feet long and as much as 124 feet beneath the surface of the mountain. Wow. Okay. Now, here's where the work really began. The Chinese. 
Yeah. If it hadn't been for them, I don't know that this would have happened. Really? They worked in shifts eight hours a day, three shifts through the 24 hours. At the the end of each shift, uh, or at the summit, there was only room for gangs of three men. Okay, now here's what they would do. One would hold the rock drill against the granite, while the other two would swing 18-pound sledgehammers to hit the back end of the drill. Wait a minute, stop just for a second here. you got a guy holding this thing. Yes. And you've got two guys with uh, hammers. 18-pound hammers. Smacking that drill. And I don't want to be the guy holding no. it. No. <laughs> I'm thinking they took turns, and you found out who your friends were. You could get killed doing yeah. that. So of all the back-breaking now, laborers... they actually held the head of that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So of all the back-breaking labor that went into the building of the Central Pacific and the Union Pacific, of all the dangers in this work... This was the worst because because the drills lost their edge to the granite and had to be replaced frequently. So these were they were they were drills. Actually, that's what they were. So the Central Pacific soon learned to order its drills in hundred ton lots, and the man holding the drill had to be steady. Or this guy was an idiot, (laughs) or or he would get hit by the sledgehammer. Holy man! The man swinging the hammer had to have muscles like steel, and when a hole was at last big enough for the black powder, the crew would fill it. Set a fuse, yell as loud as they could while running out of range of the blast. The guy that was yelling better not have laryngitis. <laughs> or he'd better be fast. Uh, sometimes the fuse worked, sometimes it didn't. Often the workers had to, had put in too much powder and most of it blew out towards them. Question. When they did these tunnels and everything, did you ever figure out how come they didn't blow the mountain down on top of them? Well, they, I guess they learned <laughs> somehow how, how to... Get it going forward. The way go east go. and west instead of north and south. Yeah. Oh. Yep. But at Summit Tunnel alone, 300 kegs of blasting powder a day went up. 300? Cost, costing 53000 to 67000 per month. Okay? That was a lot of money. To blow things up. Yeah. So, obviously, progress was slow with men working around the clock between 6 and 12 inches per 24 hours. How many people got blew up in that stuff? But, but think of that, Zeb. 6 and 12 inches of progress in 24 hours to dig these tunnels. But the men worked in groups of 20 or so because only a handful could work at any time at the front of the tunnel. Wow. So, anyway, by the middle of the summer of 1865, cargoes of Chinese laborers began arriving in San Francisco. They were shipped by riverboat uh, to Sacramento, then on to the railroad, uh, and they had to learn how to feed these Chinese people. And the Central Pacific used tents for housing as long as the weather remained warm. Now, the Chinese men were more... More than half were teenaged uh, from farm families, and they were accustomed to spending their days outdoors and sharing crowded quarters. So in a little tent, 10 by 12 feet, a half a dozen or more Chinamen would find accommodations for eating and sleeping. Now, I found this interesting. They ate healthy, well-cooked, tasty food. The Chinese paid for all their food they demanded and got an astonishing variety. Here's what they had, Zeb. Oysters. Cuttlefish, which I don't know what that is, thinned fish, abalone meat, oriental fruit, and scores of vegetables, including bamboo sprouts, seaweed, and mushrooms. Each of these had to be dried and purchased from Chinese merchants in San Francisco. 
but they stayed healthy. And here's another interesting thing, Zeb. Uh, the water they drank was, had been made into tea. So they didn't get sick like the white men did from drinking from the rivers and the streams. Really? They didn't get the the stomach problems and the yeah. dysentery and all that. Yeah. The other thing is they lived a clean life. Uh, every day they would actually bathe. Really? Whereas the white men didn't always bathe, yeah. but maybe once a month. Oh, but, yeah. But they took daily sponge baths. A lot of baths. trees. A lot yeah. of trees fell over when they smelled these guys. <laughs> and they didn't. Uh, they didn't uh, imbibe in the alcohol, but they did do a little opium only on Sundays. Oh, on so, Sundays. Yeah, but the Chinese. But they're so small. How could they do all that work? But they were strong. Remember the Great Wall of China? Yeah. But well, you've been there. I've been there, and it's amazing to and see. And you it. built part of it. <laughs> no, I didn't do it. Oh. I barely made it to the top, <laughs> carrying my pack. But anyway, the Chinese were ideal workers. They were cheap. They did as they were told. They made a quick study, and after something was shown or explained to them, they did it skillfully, few if any strikes. Uh, the same for complaints. They did what no one else was willing or able to do. Holy smokes. And they stayed healthy. They stayed healthy. So the Chinese were a huge part of the building, mainly from they the were central about, Honestly, they were about less than your size. Yeah. I'm going to guess under 150 pounds, probably oh, yeah. most of them. Yeah. Holy so anyway, man. an amazing, when they talk about uh, nothing like it in the world, that was the Transcontinental Railroad. Wow. You know what? That's one of the best ones you've had. I enjoyed that. Yeah, it's an amazing Great. story. Doctor History. Man, you hit a home run this morning. Well, let me just tell something real quick. Real quick. The Transcontinental was, at that time, the longest in the world, but soon after, not too long, the Trans-Canadian was longer, and then after that, the Trans-Siberian was even longer. Oh, I see. Okay. So. And you helped at all three. I did. Yes, yeah, sir.